This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Probiotics are basically these sort of substances that supposedly help good bacteria to populate your gut. And despite the amount of marketing that's out there when it comes to probiotics or the shelves of probiotics that you see at the drugstores, you know, there's actually very little evidence to show that they are helpful for various conditions. Welcome to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Wellness Fact versus Fiction. I am so excited for today's episode as we have TikTok's most loved gastroenterologist, Dr. Austin Chang, on the podcast. Austin is here to debunk the most common GI myths and shed light on the misinformation that could be detrimental to your health. Dr. Austin Chang is a triple board certified, dual Ivy League educated and trained gastroenterologist and advanced endoscopist. His interests include novel endoscopic weight loss treatments, as well as complex interventional endoscopic procedures. He's currently an assistant professor of medicine and chief medical social media officer at Jefferson Health in Philadelphia. He is consistently one of the most influential voices in the field of gastroenterology online, and his role in social media has been featured by the New York Times, CNBC, BBC News, Men's Health, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Becker's Healthcare, and Healthcare Dive. On today's episode, we talk about the misinformation and rumors surrounding parasite infections and treatments, the truth about colonics and coffee enemas, and the risks and complications involved with the procedures. Dr. Chang provides a full breakdown about probiotics, including who should actually take them and the harmful effects they can have on your body. We also debunk the gluten-free movement, which is going to make a lot of quote-unquote wellness experts pretty upset. I learned so much from Austin, and I know you will too, so let's get to it. Hi, everyone. We are here with Dr. Austin Chang, my good friend, who is a gastroenterologist as well as a specialist in advanced endoscopy, who is also now in the world of Medtronic. He'll tell you a little about that, too. And I'm so excited to have Austin here to debunk some GI myths because we were just talking before the podcast started and there are too many to count. So hi, Austin. Thanks for coming. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Austin, tell everyone about your training in gastroenterology. So gastroenterology training comes a little bit later than um, most training. So I went through medical school first at Columbia University in New York, then did my internal medicine residency uh, also at Columbia in New York. And it's after internal medicine residency that I pursued a subspecialty in gastroenterology. And my training was at Harvard Medical School at Brigham and Women's Hospital, where I also obtained a master's in public health. Wow. And then, because that's not enough training for the regular (laughs) person, Austin, then continue on. Yes, I then did additional (laughs) training. I actually did another fellowship in bariatric endoscopy, which uh, refers to weight loss procedures, also at Brigham and Women's, and then did an advanced endoscopy fellowship. 
uh, at Jefferson in Philadelphia. And advanced endoscopy are basically procedures that are more complex that deal with um, sometimes cancers of the gut, of the pancreas, um, helping diagnose and treat complications of cancer. And Austin is TikTok's favorite gastroenterologist. So he's actually used to this debunking, but we really have to first emphasize how many colonoscopies and endoscopies uh, a gastroenterologist has done through training and through their career. You have specifically as a proceduralist, you've you've really focused as a proceduralist. You would say you've seen quite a a lot of colons and uh, esophagus through your life, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, even just in training alone, we often will do hundreds, if not thousands, and definitely throughout a career, it's definitely on the order of thousands, if not tens of thousands. So we see a lot. And I think part of the reason why we see a lot is because there is a recommendation in the US that um, everyone undergo uh, a screening colonoscopy to help prevent and uh, detect uh, colon polyps, which are the precursors to colon cancer early on. So the current recommendation is that at age 45, everyone starts to undergo colon cancer screening. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's incredibly important. <laughs> and the age used to be 50. They changed it down to 45, right? Yeah, just last year. So this is, uh, you know, hot off the press. Okay, great. Fantastic. Well, let's start with some of our myths. And the first one we're going to start with, guys, Austin and I had a little chat about this before we jumped on the podcast. I'm laughing <laughs> to myself because... This is a really common myth, but clinically, it's so uncommon that we like couldn't find any data for it. So anyway, Austin, so what is a parasite infection? Uh, One of my listeners sent this in and said that they went to a functional medicine website and found that all of their symptoms, so fatigue, being, you know, overtired. Um, having some constipation, some diarrhea, some GI issues was all related to a parasite infection. Now, the problem is, is this individual, they, they were obviously frightened because they went to see a gastroenterologist who told them that they didn't have a, uh, a, a active parasite infection that was concerning. And once they went to see a functional medicine person, they were told they do have a parasite infection that was one of these rope worms. And they, you know, prescribed them several herbs and kind of remedies and detoxes to get rid of it. So can we go through this together? Because even though to us, it may seem like, you know, kind of mind-blowingly silly to these patients, to these people out there listening to this, like this is real to them, right? Like they have a problem, they have symptoms and they feel like, say, not heard maybe in traditional medicine for a variety of reasons. And then they go to these alternative paths and then they get a diagnosis, whether or not it's real or made up and someone's giving them an answer with solutions. So it's scary for the patients listening because there's a lot of confusion. And even you and I, when we were looking through this online, we were, it was mind-blowing with the amount of misinformation we found. So I would love for you to kind of break it down for everyone. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the parasite rumor is something that's really common, but the first thing to touch on is a lot of things in medicine are very uncertain and up for interpretation. And that's why we go through years of training to really see a lot of patients, get a better understanding of kind of what is common out there and make our best judgment, you know, using the data that we are given. So 
a lot of these solutions that, especially in the GI world, uh, when it comes to gut health, you know, seem very appealing and sometimes do make people feel better because you're often substituting some of your less healthy habits with suddenly a, a healthy concoction of, you know, fruits and vegetables or something that seems like an easy solution. And of course, people will feel better after, you know, changing things up for a, a quote unquote, most more healthy kind of option. But when it comes to parasites, you know, we're talking about an infection here. And we're talking about specific organisms that can take hold in the human body and stick around and cause problems. And, you know, there are specific tests out there to look for these organisms as well. And the fact of the matter is that here in the U.S., these organisms are pretty uncommon, at least when it comes to, you know, usually healthy individuals. Um, and, uh, and, you know, if you do have an underlying condition where it can really compromise your immune system, um, say you are on chemotherapy or other types of, you know, specific conditions that, you know, your doctor has spoken to you about have being of predisposing you to infections, it's really unlikely. And, um, and that's part of the reason why the data is so hard to find. You know, when you and I were looking for data, a lot of this data that's generated is out of outside the U.S. or related to refugees in the U.S. and not actually uh, for those of us who, you know, um, have lived here for a while. So that's part of the difficulty in this. And yeah, unfortunately, these rumors are rampant and we see them on social media, like you said, on TikTok. It's very interesting because the same sort of parasite kind of misinformation and rumor circulated once already and kind of um, sort of blew over uh, last year. And then now we're seeing this resurgence for some reason of people talking about parasites and using cleanses. And, you know, sometimes, especially when it comes to that ropeworm argument, we see photos and videos of what looks like could be worms or or other type of, you know, some type of a parasite, but really often uh, this can just be mucus or some type of other kind of fragment of poop. Fiber, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Fiber, yeah. exactly. And that's the thing is like, you know, when we um, are actually inside looking in the colon, because we have the privilege of looking in many, many colons, we just don't see the abundance of worms that people <laughs> say that there are. Yeah. That social media makes it seem, right? Like if you just peruse through, you know, wellness Instagram or, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, some of the natural Instagram or functional medicine Instagram, you would actually think that there is this epidemic in the United States of parasites. But as you and I discuss, it's it's really rare and it's mostly in other countries or someone can get an intestinal parasitic infection if they've traveled to another country recently or if they lived in a different country. Um, and because we have a clean water system here, so intestinal parasites are very uncommon here. And even if someone's immunocompromised, I, I would ask you because you're a gastroenterologist, but at least during my medicine residency, I never even saw an immunocompromised personally uh, patient admitted with a parasitic infection, like undergoing chemo or anything like that. Not to say an intestinal uh, parasite, not to say that it's not possible, but is that something you've even seen? Yeah, no, I have seen, you know, I have seen that. And I've also seen uh, intestinal parasites, again, in patients who are not from the U.S., where these parasites are endemic. Um, but the fact of the matter is, again, like if there are, if there is a patient with these sorts of symptoms, with intestinal symptoms, or if we can actually, you know, see kind of like the worms or the substances that are being excreted, you know, we can send this off for tests. We can, there are stool tests that help us identify 
you know, whether or not these parasites are truly present. So just because someone says that in a picture that this is a worm doesn't necessarily mean it's a worm. It really should undergo testing because we have very sophisticated tests nowadays to identify what those things are. And then also, um, we were talking before about how like a certain clinical level of understanding pathophysiology and pathology in general is required because um, some of the testing that's different in this space. So people who say, well, I have a test from this functional medicine doctor that says I have XYZ parasitic infections. They're not using a test that's validated by something that's recommended by the, you know, American College of Gastroenterology and something that's like in a guideline. You know, a lot of those testing that they would recommend, if they're not being used by a gastroenterologist to test for parasites, you know, maybe amplifying uh, DNA or amplifying results that are not um, haven't been proved to be validated or accurate and things like that. So I think that that's, that's a big problem too. Right. I mean, there's no, there's often no perfect test out there. You know, some tests have a higher degree of certainty. Others, you know, are up for interpretation. And, and sometimes, you know, just because something is weakly positive doesn't necessarily mean it's true. You know, it may require some interpretation and, um, and again, kind of, assessing whether or not it's likely for someone to begin with to to have that type of a condition. How many parasite infections do you see on, you know, how have you seen like clinically? It's just compared to where you see on Instagram, where it's kind of being toted as the underlying cause of autoimmune disease. It's the underlying cause of heart disease. It's the underlying cause of uh, heart failure. So as a cardiologist, I've yet to see anyone whose heart failure or coronary artery disease is caused from one of these parasites. How often are you seeing it being caused by all these things? Because we tried to find the data and statistics on it, and it's so rare in the US that we couldn't find any. Yeah, it's it's very rare. And I think that, again, it also depends on where you live, too. You know, you might see slightly higher rates of this, you know, in more urban settings or in bigger cities like New York City versus um, some other, you know, small town somewhere. So, you know, it, it's it there are regional differences as well. But in general, it is pretty rare. Again, you know, like judging by the fact that we have to take a look in people's colons all the time, you know, if this were truly the case, we'd be seeing not only tons of worms in people's guts, which we don't see, or we'd be seeing people in the hospital all the time because of these sorts of conditions, which we don't see as well. All the time. And so we actually saw, um, when we were looking up some of these websites, because we were looking, we were trying to find, well, what is the rumor out there? Um, And the treatments for, for the parasites is even more mind boggling. So the treatments they recommend are, you know, some of these functional medicine practitioners recommend like oregano, um, garlic, um, certain sort of like uh, herbs, spices, and then also like ozone therapy. So Austin, if someone had a true, say someone traveled outside of the country, they had a true parasitic infection, would you be using any of those remedies to treat it? No, none. I mean, there are specific prescribed medications targeted towards different classes of parasites. The other things that you listed above just are not proven to do anything really to treat that. Right. And so the thing is that's so, I think, confusing is that even as we were looking through PubMed and everything, it's just so easy to understand 
and I have so much empathy for people who are going through like a GI issue or they feel fatigue and they don't even feel GI symptoms, but they feel all these other symptoms and, you know, uh, they package them with this like fantastic solution to everything by giving them a made up diagnosis. It's very difficult because I think that, you know, when it comes to GI type symptoms, whether it's abdominal pain or diarrhea or constipation, like there are a lot of different potential causes for all these types of symptoms. And, um, and it's not just one single cause and it's not just parasites. And, and that's where we come in with our tools and, you know, our training to help identify what that is. But it's very difficult. Like you and I experienced looking through the data that even figuring out which sources are reliable, you know, which journals are reliable, um, you know, really, really reading in between the lines to to understand, oh, which patient population these studies are um, referring to. It's it's really hard to find accurate information out there these days. So that's why I always everyone who's listening to this knows I always refer to for everyone in every specialty guidelines because you have the experts of the experts of the experts synthesizing multiple levels of evidence, people who are literally spending their lives trying to synthesize evidence, understand what patient populations is appropriate for, grading the evidence in like a critical um, and uh, looking at scientific appraisal in a very evidence-based way and then putting it together as a recommendation. So you can always rely on guidelines. So when we look at the ropeworm infection, so we, you and I were just looking at some pictures online from um, this one kind of popular, we won't say her name, but one, one popular Instagram doctor who posts a lot about these very common, she claims, parasite infections. And we were just looking at pictures of the stool that she had posted from her followers that had shared that were these parasites. So you are a gastroenterologist who is uh, done even in more advanced endo- endoscopic training. So for how many colons you've seen, looking at what we looked at, is that a ropeworm? And is a ropeworm even real? Yeah, no. I mean, we don't even know what a ropeworm is. <laughs> no, meaning <laughs> when he says that, he means that it doesn't exist. There's no it such thing as It doesn't exist. <laughs> and yeah, again, I think that, you know, without looking under a microscope, relying on our you know, available lab tests and, you know, our, our pathology friends and our other sort of lab scientist friends to identify what these are. It's hard to say just from looking at a picture that that's anything. And from what I can tell, that could be anything. It could be, again, a fragment of poop that looks like that uh, microscopically. Yeah. And historically, a lot of what those have been are like these strings of mucus or um, (laughs) uh, strings of insoluble fiber. Um, Because a lot of times, sometimes we've actually seen in our practice, my partner's gastroenterologist have seen some patients come in and they are given these online cleanses and they'll bring in their, like the worms that they claim. And the, the cleanse is filled with like non-digestible fibers. And so they're pooping out strings of this non-digestible fiber with mucus. And that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people need to remember that what's coming out the other end depends on what you're putting in from above, you know, like what you eat will also affect how your stool appears. And it could be, you know, those cleanses may have contents that directly, you know, can affect the way the stool looks. And that doesn't necessarily mean that what's being cleaned out, quote unquote, is harmful. Is our worms. Right. right exactly. Right. So, okay. So moving on from this topic, I think we've 
really <laughs> done the full uh, 360 on Paris. <laughs> and by the way, for anyone listening, uh, I know Austin totally agrees with me on this because we both are super um, into patient-centered care. If you do have GI issues and you feel like you went to a gastroenterologist that didn't listen to you or you felt like you weren't heard or you feel like you don't jive with, I I think Austin would agree. Finding a second opinion is way more important to find another gastroenterologist that you feel like is giving you the time you deserve and you feel like is hearing you out rather than going to the other way to kind of be as providers that will give you a false solution, right? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, one important thing to emphasize is that just because it might not be parasites that we're talking about, you know, it doesn't mean that your symptoms aren't real. Exactly. It just means that we're, we need to, you know, maybe pursue other avenues of testing to help figure out what's going on. And sometimes that answer is really hard to come by. So to your point, I think getting a second or third opinion, you know, from another trained gastroenterologist is really important because, yeah, you know, there may be some doctors out there who, it might not even be the doctor. It might have just been that one-off experience that was not very pleasant. And it's okay to um, get more information from another trained physician. Totally agree. Because, you know, at the end of the day, not every doctor is going to be perfect for every patient. Um, and not every patient is going to find every doctor perfect for them. So it's super important. If a patient saw me and felt like they didn't jive with me and they wanted to see someone else, I would fully support that. Like that is something that's really important for patient care. And so I think that in general too, especially when it comes to GI stuff where there's can be like a lot of like hazy gray and confusion with symptoms, seeing someone that can help you out is super important. And like Austin said, just because we're saying that the diagnosis that they make some of these functional medicine providers, just because the diagnosis isn't real, it doesn't mean that your symptoms aren't. Your symptoms are real. You just need to find someone that's going to do an evidence-based workup for you and support you through it. Okay. So next topic we're going to hit on the other popular one of social media. Austin, please tell us, what do you think about, one of our followers asked us, what do you think about colonics? Very popular in Hollywood. Yes, I'm very popular. But I think the thing to remember about the human body is that it's built to excrete or poop out your, you know, the waste naturally. So you don't need any extra help in trying to wash things out. And, you know, for those of you who don't know, I think colonics are basically where you um, wash out the colon to kind of people that there are people out there who claim that this somehow will cleanse your body, but your body's already doing that. Okay. And when people are concerned that there's stool left behind, that's really not a concern because again, your colon is constantly moving and moving things along. And again, what you eat has to go in one direction and come out the other. It's not going to stick around and just linger. Yep. And I totally agree. And well said, you know, because um, colonics are sometimes it's called colonic irrigation. So the claims made that it helps to detoxify the body, which as we know that the that isn't really real. Your livers and your your liver and your kidney is already doing the detoxing for you. Um, and you know, they claim to help you lose weight and getting rid of this feces. They think they're getting rid of toxins in the body. And what it includes is a, a colon cleanse. So they're flushing a large amounts of water. So up to 16 gallons, Austin, through oh the colon, <laughs> through the colon, using a tube that's inserted in the rectum. And sometimes they add in special herbs. 
or they are adding coffee. Um, and then they keep it in, in the colon up to 16 gallons in the colon. And then they actually, then they flush it out. So not only do medical studies not support the supposed benefits of colon cleansing, but the procedure can come with a risk. So researchers even have even suggested that there have been several deaths linked to coffee enemas. Yeah. Because I'm sure that, you know, the people administering these sorts of colonics might not be, you know, familiar with the anatomy or what things look like inside. Because again, they're not trained professionals to do colonoscopies the way we are as gastroenterologists. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, again, if you were to clean out everything in the colon, which we sometimes will do in with, by other means before people undergo a colonoscopy, the next time you have a meal, the food goes back in, you know? And so it's not, you're never going to be totally cleaned out, cleansed, free of any waste in the colon. That's just how the human body works. Some of the complications that have been reported from colonics include rectal perforation, um, perforation of the colon. I mean, can you describe what occurs when that happens? Yeah. A perforation is basically a hole in the wall of the colon. And, you know, if they're, if it's from a colonic, it's because of trauma causing a tear that rips open and a hole. And, and that's particularly dangerous in the colon because, um, or any part of the gut really, but especially in the colon, because the bacteria from the stool in your colon can um, exit, you know, through that hole into the rest of your abdomen. And that can be really dangerous. And that's something that, yeah, we don't wish on anybody. Uh, yeah. Like a perforation of the colon is, is an emergency. So obviously putting 16 gallons of fluid through the colon to clean it out. Yeah. And even if you were to fully rinse it out with water, doesn't mean that there's no bacteria in your colon anymore. You know, even if you cause a tear in the wall of the colon that can still lead to an infection. That's a really important point. And um, another risk is also that um, colonics can actually also cause dehydration because as you're cleaning out the colon, in, in addition to the risk of you know perforating your bowels and um, increasing your risk of infection, it can alter your electrolyte levels and make yes. things like nausea, cramping, vomiting, and stuff like that. Exactly. And, and you know, the types of bowel preps that we use to clean out the colon, you know, appropriately before you undergo a colonoscopy, those are specific substances that um, don't lead to these massive shifts of fluid um, into your colon where you become dehydrated. And we're talking about fluid shifts. And maybe you've mentioned this on other podcasts before, you know, fluid shifts where the fluid is moving away from your blood vessels um, into your colon. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's how dehydration can happen with this. Fascinating. So the other thing that is mentioned too are, are coffee enemas. So similar to a colonic, but with maybe less fluid. So during the procedure, okay, you ready for this? A mixture of brewed caffeinated coffee and water oh is inserted the colon through the rectum. And it was this really, really pseudoscience thing called Gerson therapy that put this on the map. And they believe that you can detox your body by doing these coffee enemas. So they believed that coffee enemas would stimulate bile flow and would actually help detox you. Anyway, what are your thoughts on a coffee enema? <laughs> I think coffee is best enjoyed when you're drinking it <laughs> and not going up uh, the back end. 
Um, <laughs> and I think just, you know, that theory of somehow stimulating, but I don't even know where that came from. Um, even just if you think about the location of these two organs is completely different, you know, where the small intestine is, where the bile exits into the intestine, that is, you know, 20 feet worth of small intestine away from the colon. So even just from that standpoint, it doesn't quite make sense. Yeah, that's a pretty good way to describe it. I mean, the the entire, the the physiology that they're even suggesting doesn't even make sense. And actually, according to the National Cancer Institute, three deaths have been reported in the literature related to coffee enemas um, due to perforation and bacterial infection and electrolyte imbalance. There also was a letter to the editor published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology where they found a coffee enema caused proctocolitis, so inflammation of the colon and rectum. And yeah, they should be considered risky. That's the official statement from the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Yeah. Again, these are preventable deaths. So this is not even something related to, you know, some sort of attempted, you know, actual proven treatment. So please don't do this. How about also next when we talk about probiotics? So there is probably no supplement that is recommended more widely for everything imaginable than probiotics. I mean, probiotics are sold all the time online. I see them on Instagram posts and accounts all the time. And so can you tell us what are probiotics? What are the actual evidence-based guideline recommended indications for probiotics? And yeah, when, when are they actually used? Yeah, so probiotics are basically these sort of substances that supposedly help good bacteria to populate your gut. And despite the amount of marketing that's out there when it comes to probiotics or the shelves of probiotics that you see at the drugstores, you know, there's actually very little evidence to show that they are helpful for various conditions. There actually was a published guideline in our field by the American Gastroenterological Association, arguably the biggest society in gastroenterology in 2020, that tried to look into probiotics and whether or not they actually help certain conditions. And they they did have conditional recommendations. So in very, very rare situations, there may be some benefit to probiotics, but they're in very specific situations. Can you give them those rare? Because, yeah, they're super rare. Yeah. So, for instance, you know, adults and children on antibiotics, and this is they have very specific suggestions of what types of probiotics. So you definitely need to talk to a doctor about what kind of probiotics in those situations. Um, There's also a conditional recommendation for uh, adults and children with a condition called pouchitis. Um, which is uh, typically an inflammatory bowel disease, uh, patients who have had surgery and have a part of their bowel called the pouch. Um, there's also in preterm uh, low birth weight infants where there is a specific type of probiotic that's recommended. Uh, but again, these are such specific uh, situations that the vast majority of us really don't need probiotics um, and that there's no recommendation to be taking them for any any kind of common reason. And this is really interesting. This is from the NIH. So um, 
Probiotics, so they're not regulated by the FDA the same way a medication is like mm-hmm. um, regulated. That's like a gone through randomized controlled trials um, and things like that. But very few studies have looked at the safety of probiotics in detail. So there is a lack of solid information on how severe and frequent their side effects, but there are risks. So um, risks of harmful effects from probiotics is actually greater in people with severe illnesses or compromised immune systems. And the NIH mentions that possible harmful effects include actually infections, production of harmful substances by the probiotic microorganism, transfer of the antibiotic resistance genes from probiotic microorganisms to other microorganisms in the GI tract. Um, Some probiotic products have been reported to contain microorganisms other than those listed on the label, and those contaminants can pose serious health risks. So the NIH, this is directly from the NIH website. Yeah, I think it's important to uh, reiterate, like you mentioned, there may be very few small guideline indications for when probiotics are useful. And that's a discussion with your physician where you have to evaluate whether the risks are outweighed by the benefits for your particular condition. And what's so unfortunate about probiotics is that they're marketed as if they're good for everyone. Yeah. And the thing is like what's over the counter at the drugstore, you know, there's so much variability on what types of bacteria are included in those probiotics. We don't even know like the specific dosing at which, you know, uh, these probiotics are actually potentially helpful or not. There's like you said, they're not regulated and what's being sold to you might not actually be doing anything and sometimes can be harmful. So I think, yeah, it's important to, unless something is going to be giving more benefits than risks, um, (laughs) even when it comes to supplements or things that over the, over the counter, they're not always benign. So um, there's a very small window of people who do have more benefits than risks when it comes to using when it comes to using probiotics, I mean, a very small window. I mean, the the indications you listed are, you know, not as wide as they're marketed to. Yeah, they're very specific. (laughs) Okay, so how about there's a lot of discussion with people having in the um, alternative medicine space online about people having these very widespread candida infections, um, having candida all throughout their gut. And I know that that can actually obviously happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you explain kind of what a true candida infection is versus kind of what's profoundly through the internet? Yeah, the more common type of candida infections that we see often happen in older people or people with who are immunocompromised. And what we most often see is in the mouth and in the esophagus. Uh, And we can actually see this, you know, using an uh, endoscope, a camera that we look inside and we see these white plaques that are sticking to the walls of the esophagus. And, um, but it's really limited to these areas. And um, it just requires a short treatment of antifungals to get rid of it. Um, But, you know, these sort of big, widespread, you know, fungal infections um, are much, much less common and really only um, happen in immunocompromised individuals. Excellent. What are the things that you've seen misdiagnosed or what are the biggest rumors you've seen on the internet that you think people have just been misled about GI health? There's a lot of misinformation about the gut microbiome and probiotics, as we talked about. 
you know, we just simply, the science hasn't quite caught up yet. And, you know, maybe one day we'll be able to have more targeted treatments, but right now with what's out there, it's just not um, where it needs to be yet, you know, scientifically. I think the other thing is, you know, there's an emphasis on the gut brain axis or the gut brain connection, which I think is very real in the sense that the signals from your gut are telling your brain that you might be in pain and that there are ways sometimes that that system is going haywire and malfunctioning and we need to kind of address that pain signal. But again, there's there's still a lot that we need to learn about that. And some of these other conditions like irritable bowel syndrome and um, other types of what we call functional conditions may involve these sorts of nerve pathways. There isn't a whole lot out there in terms of, you know, really clarifying that connection very well. So in any case, there are specialists who are focused on, you know, pain management and on these functional conditions like irritable bowel syndrome, which is very common. And what's hard for, I think, a lot of people to grasp is that, you know, we are, again, we're not denying anyone's symptoms. I think sometimes we try to classify symptoms into a syndrome, but uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that there is a great test that will kind of pick up this condition right away. It doesn't mean that there's something physically like a parasite that could be causing these symptoms that we have to chase after. It could just be that, you know, the way our brains perceive our symptoms is kind of, uh, that's what we have to really target. That's a really good point. I especially love that you pointed out the confusion with the gut microbiome. So I will be the first person to admit when I have been wrong. So I used to believe the science and some of the interpretations of the gut microbiome a few years ago, um, far more. And then I think that as time has evolved and I've become, uh, you know, it, it takes practice to be able to learn how to uh, critically appraise and evaluate research in a topic. And so when I started to write more research papers, review more research papers for journals, and I became better at understanding and evaluating research, I realized, holy smokes, the gut microbiome research is really preliminary, meaning we're not even sure at this point, and you can ask some of the world-renowned gut microbiome researchers this, we're not even sure at this point exactly what shifts in what microbes makes what clinical difference with heart endpoints and outcomes. We really don't even know at this point, you know? And so with... I think it's a very fascinating area of study and the research is really interesting and certainly should be funded and there should be people researching it. But the more I realize looking at this research, uh, you know, and I think that this is the general belief uh, across anyone that's really evaluating this research is that the more you look at it, the more you realize how preliminary it is. We truly don't even know you shift this bacteria to this more, um, you know, colonies of this bacteria, you're going to see this kind of clinical endpoint or outcome. You know, there's so much diversity with regards to the different assays that are used, the different testing that's done. And so I think it's important research, but I think anyone that's humble will admit that we don't really know what to make of it yet. So while I think yeah. it's exciting, I think that people are letting enthusiasm outpace evidence. And that to me is the can be harmful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, this is a good opportunity to bring up a point about home gut microbiome testing. There's home and gut microbiome yes, testing. Oh, we don't absolutely. even have clip, we don't even have clinical <laughs> data to tell us what 
gut microbiome testing even means. So that's the issue. Yeah. Is that, you know, sometimes these like home microbiome tests will come back with results that nobody knows what to do with. Because again, like, we don't know what it means. Right. And there's, there's science out there that sometimes will say, you know, that certain populations, depending on where you are in the world, have this type of a, you know, population of bacteria in their gut versus another population. Or, you know, there's a lot of associations saying that people who are suffering from obesity have a certain type of gut microbiome population versus those who are not. But a lot of these associations um, are just associations. They don't, we don't know exactly what it means and whether or not it truly is causing a problem or if it's something that can be treated, you know, it's totally up in the air. And, and so, yeah, I I think that take everything that you hear about the gut microbiome with a a giant grain of salt and, um, and really talk to your gastroenterologist, you know, to see if there's something there that, you know, is worth uh, looking into. You know, it's wild to me. This is like the definition of America is the fact that we have before the science, before the scientific evidence is robust enough for gut microbiome research to tell us what hard clinical outcomes are going to be altered by different changes in the gut microbiome. Before we have actually robust enough scientific research on validated, validated methods to evaluate the gut microbiome that, that you can replicate studies that actually have meaningful clinical outcomes. Before we have any of that, we have a mail order to home gut microbiome test. It's just wild to me. Like it is (laughs) wild to me how predatory this market is. Yeah. And I think that, you know, just so everyone kind of can put this into perspective, you know, just like how we don't have one specific test to say that you have a healthy brain or of a healthy heart or healthy lungs, there's no test that tells you that you have a healthy gut, you know? And I think that's the challenge is that, you know, a lot of the uh, what we're looking for is, you know, it's based on what we've learned and kind of what to suspect and specific conditions that we're looking for and not, you know, give me uh, just a massive map of what's going on and, you know, tell me to pinpoint something from that. That's not how it works. <laughs> so the other big question we get moving on is about, you know, it's so popular now to be gluten-free. It is like the most popular thing in the world. But can you clarify for everyone who actually needs to be gluten-free and how you test for that, how you actually evaluate for that, and why gluten is safe for people that don't fit into that category? Yeah, this is a great point. Yeah, because again, like probiotics, the gluten-free movement has been very heavily marketed out there. Um, and you know, those who absolutely need to avoid gluten are people with celiac disease. And that's basically an autoimmune condition that wears away at the lining of your small intestine because it kind of, uh, it, it, it responds to gluten. And that's the reason why that condition develops. So as long as you remove gluten from your diet, then, then the intestine can kind of not be harmed as a result. But for people who don't have celiac disease, you don't necessarily have to uh, avoid gluten. Um, and I think that the reason why there have been also other kind of highly debated conditions like gluten sensitivity is that some people still feel icky or have symptoms, you know, when they eat things with gluten in them. But the issue is that um, I think most scientists will argue that it's because 
those foods also have other things in them that can cause those symptoms. And it's not the gluten itself that's causing that. Great point. This is from the NIH. Um, The prevalence of celiac disease in the United States is 0.71%. So with the amount of gluten-free products we see out there marketed to everyone, everywhere, the fact that the actual prevalence on the NIH website is 0.71% really goes to show the disconnect between marketing and evidence-based medicine. Can you explain for everyone what someone with true celiac disease may have symptoms and how? what's the evidence-based way of diagnosing it? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it can be kind of your typical type of gut symptoms, like whether it's abdominal pain or even changes in your bowel habits. Um, but sometimes it can be very subtle, like anemia too, because, you know, that's it's affecting the part of your intestine that, that is absorbing um, iron. But the issue is that, you know, the way that we truly will diagnose this is that there are blood tests and the, the kind of gold standard for diagnosis is actually taking biopsies, taking samples of the small intestine lining, which requires an endoscopy to actually go down there and do that. And the key is that in order for that test to be accurate, you have to not avoid gluten because uh, we need to be able to detect it. Unless you've had that test done, it's really hard to say that you have uh, celiac disease. And I will actually say that, you know, there have also been estimates to say that it is underdiagnosed. So true celiac disease is underdiagnosed. So again, that's why it's so important to see a professional so you get the appropriate type of workup. So do you think that um, it's underdiagnosed because you think that most people are just associating their GI symptoms with something else? That could be the case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or, you know, that their symptoms are so mild that they don't even think, you know, to, to get checked out. And it's on a blood test that kind of it gets detected that there's something abnormal. Um, and it really, again, rely, you have to rely on a good doctor to be able to interpret those results and think of the fact that that could be a possibility. So, you know, that's the challenging part. Yeah, this meta-analysis, there was a systematic review and meta-analysis of incidents of celiac disease over time. And they essentially said that the diagnosis based on biopsy-confirmed celiac disease is at 0.7%, serology, 1.4%. So (laughs) I'm sure there's also limitations that go into it for, you know, access to testing and whether someone's going to get that done. So I think the bottom line is that it's not as common as marketing would make it seem. Right. Doesn't mean that it's uh, 100% not what you have if you have symptoms. So the most important thing to do is if you do have symptoms is to see a gastroenterologist who can help sort out what kind of test is appropriate for you. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, there's even another uh, group of people who do have celiac disease who still have symptoms that aren't well controlled. And, you know, the sad thing is that a lot of there's a lot of hidden gluten out there as well. So even for those of you who might be avoiding gluten for without celiac disease, there still might be gluten in restaurants and whatnot, because, you know, generally speaking, people aren't doing a great job of really making sure that there's no gluten everywhere. That's actually really important because for people who actually do have celiac disease, it's incredibly important for them to be avoiding gluten. It's so hard. And and as a result, I think a lot of them end up, you know, in order to really avoid gluten 100%, they have to prepare their own food and, you know, be very careful. Yeah. 
Wow. So this is from the CDC. They said in average healthy people, on average, one in 133 people. Um, and in people with first degree relatives, parent, child, sibling, horse celiac is one in 22. So if you have a family member that has it, more likely. Yes, absolutely. Um, and people, second degree relatives or celiac, it's one in 39. So yeah, it really seems like that it's just important to make sure that you get any symptoms you're having evaluated by a gastroenterologist. But that being said, I do think it's important to reiterate on the other end uh, that if you do not have celiac disease, gluten is not harmful and gluten is not uh, pro-inflammatory um, or problematic. So um, what, what are your thoughts on gluten in someone without celiac disease and the GI tract? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, if you're avoiding gluten without celiac disease, you know, our main concern as gastroenterologists is that you may be avoiding so many different types of foods that you're not getting other necessary nutrients. And honestly, when you're trying to avoid entire groups of food like that, it can be really stressful. And we all have enough stress as it is. So like, there's no need to actually put yourself through that. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, when you don't have celiac disease, there are uh, avoiding gluten is actually not going to give you a health benefit. Right. So, as, so everything we always discuss is, um, you know, benefits versus risks. And what are the benefits? So what's the benefit of avoiding gluten if you don't have celiac? There, there is no medical or health benefit. Um, right. And so there could be some, like Austin just mentioned, some risks, meaning, you know, just some added stress, some missing some really healthful foods that have gluten, like whole wheat breads and um, certain grains and things like that. Um, and kind of just, you know, making your life a little more complicated when it doesn't need to be. Um, there's studies that have shown that actually more gluten consumption is associated with lower, lower risks of heart disease because we have so much data showing us that whole grains are beneficial for heart disease risk. And so even celiac, the um, official uh, nonprofit for celiac disease that celiac.org, they even emphasize that if you don't have celiac disease, that avoiding gluten, you know, is not beneficial and there may be more um, risks than benefits. So I think that we should demystify the fear of gluten if you're outside of that small percentage that do have diagnosed celiac. Exactly. Where can everyone find you for more evidence-based GI information? Oh, well, I am on pretty much all the major platforms, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, YouTube, you name it. Um, and my handle is Austin Chang, MD, A-U-S-T-I-N-C-H-I-A-N-G, MD. <laughs> and yeah, you can uh, you can find me online. Pretty easy to find. And we're going to just push Austin to do more um, debunks on his social media because I know he took a break from it. You said that last year, the last time you did a uh, parasite one, you said it was about papaya seeds or something, right? Yeah, there was a whole TikTok trend when people where people went out and um, were kind of talking about papaya seeds or buying other types of cleanses, you know, for parasites, um, <laughs> going to, I think, uh, I want to say like pets, pet shops and oh. buying sort of cleanses that either way, it was nothing evidence based. All right. Well, follow Austin for the evidence-based information. And thank you, Austin, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. 
So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness fad you'd like debunked next, and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at MD and our podcast page at Wellness Fact Versus Fiction, and be sure to tune in next week.